Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook. I'm your host, Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. This week, we're going to run down a couple of the big stories happening right now. Tuesday night, Democrat Doug Jones won a Senate seat in Alabama. This is the first time in 25 years that a Democrat will hold uh, the Senate seat in Alabama. So we'll talk about the implications of that race nationally and also for the statewide races, uh, various races happening in Arizona. And I also want to talk about the budget battle happening and uh, at the federal level and whether it would be a good move for Democrats to make demands on certain things, maybe demands on DACA um, at the risk of a, a possible government, government shutdown. But first, uh, just a real quick question about the state of conservatism and like, what, what does it mean to be a, this is the word conservative. What does it mean to be a conservative in 2018? I'm not even sure what it means anymore. Cause it's used, I hear it used, you know, to mean belief originally in small governments and free markets. Um, but now it seems to be co-opted by Trumpism and you hear it thrown around to mean more of like a conservative as someone loyal to Trump and, and believes in, in his nationalism. Oftentimes it, will be a reference to even his cultural beliefs about things like, you know, a conservative has pride in the flag and stands for the national anthem or says Merry Christmas and even has kind of an anti-immigration protectionist. So what is it, what does that word mean anymore? And what does that mean for the party, for the Republican party? Well, a, a label in politics um, ends up meaning what most people are willing to accept it as meaning. Uh, there is, however, a history here. In my view, modern American conservatism was invented by Bill Buckley in the 1950s, and it combined um, four basic uh, themes. Uh, a limited federal government, uh, free market economics, an aggressive American role to combat the expansion of communism, and a culture rooted in religion. And um, from uh, Ronald Reagan is is who made the Republican Party largely a conservative party, and that describes Reagan's basket of beliefs. There was always what back in the 1990s was called paleo-conservatism that was championed by Pat Buchanan, and that foreshadowed Donald Trump. Um, Buchanan espoused uh, economic nationalism, protectionism, isolationism in foreign policy, anti um, a generous immigration policy. Dur during that time when he was doing that were traditional conservatives and paleo or palo. How, what did you say? Pa palo conservative palo is what it was known conservatism. as. Were they both calling themselves conservatives? Yes. So, so there, there was this sort of fight for what does it mean to be a conservative? Uh, and certainly, um, Trump, uh, has taken the palo views and, given them greater strength. It was always a minority view uh, in the 1990s. Trump won the Republican nomination. So 
you can say the Republican Party uh, embraced uh, Trump's view of conservatism, if he has a view of conservatism. Um, I don't think that that I, I don't think that changes the fundamental uh, definition, and I'm not sure that it represents a majority view, as we've discussed in previous podcasts. I think the Trump success is mostly explained not by his specific issues, uh, but by the fact that there was a hunger among Republican primary voters for someone who would just go and shake up uh, Washington, D.C., um, what's really interesting is that when Buckley adopted the term conservative to describe that basket of beliefs, conservative in those days was a pejorative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that you, that, that you accused somebody of, and liberal uh, was the preferred political label. So even, so, the, even the Republican Party, if you were called a conservative, that would be an insult? Yes, and, and so we, we've completely reversed it. Today, everyone is fighting over the right to call themselves a conservative, and um, liberals are calling themselves progressive. So the, these these terms can change in their definition, they can change in their currency, and they can change in their appeal. It's like someone calls himself a conservative now, you have no idea what they, which conservative they are. I mean, you, is this... Are we witnessing a breakup, do you think, of the Republican Party? It is certainly possible. Uh, I mean, there is not a bridge that can be made between those who believe in free trade and those who believe in protectionism. Uh, There's not a bridge that can be made between uh, those who uh, believe that um, immigration is good for the country and vital to our future and those who believe that we've got to shut the door. There's not a bridge to be made uh, between those who believe that we have to have an aggressive American presence uh, leading the world and those who believe that we've been taken advantage of and it's uh, time to do less and for other countries to do more. Um, so um there, and, and, and at this point in time, you can't say that one strand of thought is dominant within the Republican Party. Um, and if Trumpism becomes the new Republican Party, uh, there are small government conservatives who believe in free trade and believe in uh, the value of immigration who won't feel at home in that party and uh, will probably form at least initially, a fairly small third party to reflect their views. And I wonder how sustainable that is, too. I can't speak for all of my generation, but it seems like the term even Republican is becoming almost like a dirty a dirty accusation or a word because it's becoming associated with, with Trump and his attitude and his personality. And so I wonder if there's a staying power to that beyond just the person of Trump and the and those that support him right now. I don't think there's any question that that Trump has um, injured the Republican brand among your generation, uh, but your generation also doesn't have much use for parties. Period. Uh, it's not as though this is resulting in a surge of affiliation and participation in Democratic Party politics and um, the. Uh, 
the fact that your generation doesn't have much use for parties uh, may have a lasting impact on the way in which we conduct elections and the way that we form political affiliations as time marches on. And I think there are, it kind of bums me out because there are so many important things to talk about um, that young people care about that I don't, I just don't think are being talked about right now because there's so much noise and ugliness with, with well, Trump we, and the things he says and the tweets and the Russia investigation. It's like, you know, we're not, we're not talking about healthcare taxes and you know, whether, whether young people are going to have any social security. Let's, uh, let's move on to the, uh, to the big, big story that's, uh, that came out of Alabama's election. And just a quick rundown. Um, they're having a special election because, uh, Jeff Sessions, who was, uh, the Senator in Alabama was chosen to be the Trump's attorney general. So there's an open seat. And that was contested by, um, a couple of Republicans, uh, in a, in a primary, um, Roy Moore came out of that to win the primary, uh, in Alabama. And, he was on record saying that Muslims shouldn't be allowed to serve in the Congress. Um, he had made several homophobic statements and, and was twice expelled as a judge. He was a um, on the on the Supreme Court in Alabama once for refusing to take down the Ten Commandments um, and for refusing to um, allow same-sex marriage. And so he was he had all that reputation and. Um, I know Jeff Flake said he wasn't going to support him even before all these other allegations came out. And then he was hit with um, sexual misconduct allegations that were uncovered by the Washington Post, um, harassment, uh, molestation um, of teenagers, uh, and pretty, pretty credible um, accusations. He was going up against a guy by the name of Doug Jones, uh, a Democrat, uh, who won his primary. And for the first time in 25 years, a Democrat won. Doug Jones won the election in Alabama, um, defeated Roy Moore. And um, I mean, to me, talk about takeaways. To me, the biggest takeaway is that Trump's endorsement, he was 0 for 2 in this race with his endorsements. He endorsed Luther Strange in the primary against Roy Moore. Um, He lost that and then he endorsed Roy Moore, um, campaigned for him, told everyone to vote for him, tweeted about him, tweeted that Doug Jones was bad. Um, and, uh, and Roy Moore lost Doug, Doug Jones in the general. So my hope, my hope, my takeaway was that um, this fear of Trump's influence and, and the Republican congressman like wanting to have Trump's blessing and afraid if he goes against them would go away, that this would, this would show that his power as a um, power of him supporting someone isn't as great as he thought it would be before. What's, what do you think about, about that interpretation and what's your biggest takeaway from the race? Trump um, doesn't dictate how Republican primary voters vote. And in, um, in, 2016, uh, many establishment Republicans outpolled uh, Trump in their states and their districts. So it isn't that his endorsement is dispositive. 
However, I think it is still uh, extremely influential. Uh, all polling indicates that there is a desire among Republican primary voters for uh, someone who will support the president. Now, uh, so, so, th so that talks about his influence in Republican primaries. Uh, despite his choice not making it in Alabama, I think that there was some sense that his support for uh, Strange was half-hearted and even a belief um, that his heart was with Roy Moore, and Trump as much as said so uh, after the primary. So I don't think Republican voters thought they were voting for someone who wouldn't support the president when they chose Roy Moore. It may be an entirely different story in a general election. Uh, it seems from the Virginia special election uh, that uh, Trump... Uh, stimulates turnout among Democrats. Uh, and there's not much evidence that he stimulates turnout among Republicans or that he is persuasive uh, to Republicans who only vote in general elections or independents. Um, so I think it's still a powerful factor uh, in Republican primaries. Uh, I think it is neutral to negative in a general election. And spe speaking of uh, people who are running um, with the idea that they are going to be supporting the president, uh, we have an open seat here um, in Arizona for the House, Trent Franks uh, resigning. And there was a candidate today, Phil Lovas, um, who basically just announced like, hey, Trump, I'm a Trump guy. Uh, in his in his announcement for, um, for running for the seat, so for that seat is pretty conservative in the way of of Trump, but conservative uh, the district that um, is opening up here. Is your prediction that's going to be just filled by another guy like Phil Lovas? It will be filled by a very conservative Republican. Uh, in terms of Trumpism, conservative? Well, um, <laughs> no, not, not necessarily. I mean, Lovez is a Trump guy. He, he headed up um, the Arizona campaign for Trump. He was appointed uh, by Trump to a position in the Small Business Administration, if memory serves. Um, but he is more than just a Trump guy. He, he had a record as a traditional conservative Republican prior to Trump entering um, the scene. Uh, there's at least two other um, strong candidates uh, in Bob Stump and Debbie Lesko, who are very traditional Republicans. Steve Montenegro uh, has Frank's endorsement and is running as a supporter of the president. So it, it will be wide open, um, a poll, and we, can, we have reason to be skeptic of, skeptical of polls these days. But a poll indicated that by a three-to-one margin, Republican voters in that district um, would be uh, more inclined to vote for someone whom Trump had endorsed. We don't know yet whether Trump will endorse, uh, but I think it's fair to say there won't be any never-Trump bona fide uh, candidates in that race. They will all be pledging support for the president, but they're all not 
Trumpsters. The other thing I wonder about the Alabama race and Trump's endorsement of Roy Moore is whether that's going to be a stain on another further stain on on Trump, and that might be relevant, like with the Senate race here. If you see like a Kelly Ward, who's a kind of all in on Trump versus a more traditional Republican. I'm not sure if McSally has announced yet, or she has not yet announced. If, if another traditional conservative runs, even in the Republican Party, are we at the point now where being a all in on Trump like Kelly Ward is is that going to be a turnoff? At, at present, I don't think it is in a Republican primary again. Um, now, We're not there yet. Yeah, but, but in Arizona, for example, um, we have benefited greatly from NAFTA, which Trump has uh, denounced as um, perhaps the worst trade deal ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, will Ward uh, echo that position? I mean, how far will her... Uh, I'm I'm the Trump candidate. Go, uh, so it, that may change there. I, I don't think Trump's a positive in the general election. Trump only won Arizona by four percentage points. Uh, every other presidential candidate before him, uh, going back to uh, before after Bill Clinton, uh, has won by close to double digits. And uh, so I'm. Going another follow-up question about the cinema uh, or the Senate race here. Uh, Kirsten Cinema must have been looking at that Alabama race pretty closely. I imagine did, is there anything she can take away for in terms of uh, Doug Jones's strategy? Because he seems, um, I mean, he seemed moderate but kind of authentic in what he stood for uh, in that race. What can she learn, if anything, from? What happened in Alabama? I, I don't I don't think much. I don't think um, Alabama travels to Arizona. There was so much unique baggage uh, that Roy Moore had. Um, certainly, uh, the Virginia results indicated that uh, Trump was a factor in increasing Democratic turnout. Um, it doesn't appear so much the case uh, in Alabama. It's more Republicans abandoning more. Uh, but uh, Cinema needs, if she can, to reduce the Republican turnout advantage uh, to make herself competitive. She has said she's not going to run an anti-Trump campaign. Uh, but if Trump is a turnout motivator for Democrats, uh there's no question that that benefits cinema. And there will be huge national Democratic money uh, that comes into the state for her race and our two um, closely contested congressional races and maybe a third closely contested congressional race. So if Trump can turn out Democrats, you can be sure that there will be a lot of money in Arizona spent trying to make that happen. Is the governorship even close to being on the table in Arizona? Is Doug Ducey worried at all about a Democrat contender? In ordinary circumstances, I don't think he would. Uh, Republicans, uh, a Democrat hasn't won a statewide race in Arizona since 2008. Uh, if anything, the margins have been getting uh, larger. The Republican 
registration and turnout advantages over uh, Democrats uh, have expanded, uh, not shrunk. Uh, But we're in a weird political season. And certainly if the Trump effect is to increase Democratic turnout, that combined with the education funding issue uh, might give a Democrat a shot in Arizona and might shake up things in other state offices. So state offices that ordinarily you would assume are safely Republican in an off-presidential turnout year um, might be in play. This is a weird political season. Yeah, definitely. Let's go to our last topic here, and that's the budget, federal budget. Last week, they were expecting, some people were expecting a showdown, thought that maybe the Democrats would try to shut down the government to make some demands, um, specifically around DACA and protecting the protecting the dreamers. That didn't happen. They kicked the can down the road. They signed a two-week spending bill that left the government open and running for another two weeks. So take us briefly through the budget rules, um, how... How has this happened, and why Why do the Republicans, if they're in charge, if they have the majority, why do they need Democrat votes at all for this budget? Well, it's really weird. Um, what's supposed to happen is before the um, federal government's fiscal year begins in October, going back to April, Both houses of Congress are supposed to agree on a budget resolution that says, in general terms, here's what we're going to, here's how much we're going to spend and where we're going to spend it. Then, sometime in June, the House is supposed to produce actual appropriations bills that authorize the specific spending. And so, theoretically, that gives enough time for the Senate to pass its own, for there to be a conference, and to have an actual budget before you get to the. In the House and in the Senate. Well, this is what's weird. For the budget resolution, which is what they're using to, to hammer through uh, tax reform, you only need a simple majority in both bodies. To actually pass an appropriations bill uh, that spends the money that you've agreed to generally in the budget resolution requires 60 votes uh, in the uh, Senate because an appropriation bill, as opposed to a budget resolution, is subject to the filibuster. So to actually authorize spending, uh, you have to have Democratic support in the Senate. It's still a simple majority in the House. It's always a simple majority in the House. Yes. And by resolution, it's like this is how much we want to spend. In general terms. And then the appropriations are, we're giving this money to these groups. We're specifically authorizing reasons. the Treasury to write checks. So for the final, so you can pass some some laws through the, resolu- or through the resolution process, which is what the tax thing is trying to do. But once you get down to spending the money, you need 60 votes in the, in the Senate. Senate. Gotcha. And what, let's say the government shuts down. What actually does shut down? I know there's like some essential government function versus not, but let's say the government shuts down who gets paid and what's what's going on? Well, the the administration sort of defines that. You you de- you you divide the federal workforce between essential and non-essential. There's some discretion 
by the administration to decide uh, which employees fit in which category. But generally, you can assume that Department of Homeland Security and the CIA will still be trying to protect us against terrorism. Uh, but if you want to go visit a national park, you're going to be out of luck. Um, people who process Social Security checks um, uh, will probably be deemed essential. Um, uh, people who process other federal applications, say passports, probably would not. And the Democrats want a lot of things. Um, one of the biggest things that they want is DACA protection, uh, protection for dreamers, um, immigrants who were, uh, came to the United States um, at a young age that usually were brought by their parents. Uh, many of them have lived here their entire lives, and um, this is their home country. This, um, they want that uh, badly. They have an option to not give their votes and just say, we're not giving these votes, and we're willing to just sit on this to get what we want. Um, that's one thing that they want. Is that a good idea? Let's say they do that, the government shuts down, I mean, if they did that, would, would the Republicans blink and give in to those demands? Um, and if they didn't, who's, who gets blamed for something like that? And is that ultimately a good strategy that the Democrats can play? Very good questions without um, extremely clear answers. Um, my guess is that the Democrats could get away with that, whether they want to do that before Christmas or whether there's another short-term spending bill that kicks us into the first of the year, I'm not sure. But ultimately, before there's a, a uh, approval of spending for the remainder of the fiscal year, um, Democrats, I suspect, will run that gambit. And uh, I also, my guess also is that re the Republicans will blink. Uh, when the government is shut down, there's a natural tendency by the American people to assume that it's the Republicans' fault because the perception is Democrats like government and Republicans really don't. Mm -hmm. When you have Republicans in charge of all three branches of government, um, blaming the Republicans in the event of a shutdown is uh, even more likely. And if the Democratic demands are reasonable, there's overwhelming support for granting some kind of legal status to um, those young adults who were brought here illegally as children. Uh, if the Democrats don't overreach, and it's things like that, um, another, another item that they've talked about making part of their price uh, for providing the Democratic votes, uh, is reauthorization of the children's health insurance program. If they're on those lines, I think that's fairly safe. If they want a repeal of tax reform, for example, if the Republicans somehow manage to, to pass it, then you might have a more complicated thing. But my own view is the Democrats are holding the cards here, and, uh, Repub and Republican leaders, while right now they're talking a brave game, you know, we, we, we want to handle... Uh, dreamers as standalone separate legislation. Uh, I don't think they want to get anywhere near a government shutdown.
where the president is, that's an entirely yeah. different uh, question. He wants uh, talked favorably about uh, having the government shut down. So um, who knows where he will be, but I firmly believe that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell will want to avoid a government shutdown, even if the price is a little steep, even if the cost in terms of harmony within their own caucuses uh, is pretty high. We'll see how it plays out. I, ho- I mean, I hope that the DREAM Act in some form gets passed some way or the other. It seems like there's overwhelming support for it in the public, and I mean, just get that thing done. Um, well, let's finish with the Arizona trivia question about the Arizona Senate. There's been 12 senators total in Arizona. Five of them have been Democrats, five out of 12. How many did can you name? Well, you have Dennis DeConcini, uh, Carl Hayden, Ernest McFarlane, and I think I've probably exhausted uh, my ability to go back and uh, remember uh, past the 1950s. Well, you're three for five. Um, there's two Democrats that ran the ran the Senate when the Arizona first became a state. Uh, Marcus Smith and Henry Fountain Ashurst, 1912. They were elected to Democrats. So we'll see if there's a number six out there. We're going <laughs> to increase that, um, that ratio. Thank you very much for listening this week to the Political Notebook. If you haven't subscribed, you can subscribe to us. Um, also, we'd love to hear from you. We've, we've heard a lot of, uh, of feedback, and we, we appreciate all the feedback that, that you offer. So shoot us a note. Um, you can email at robpodcast at gmail.com. That's R-O-B-B podcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a rating on, on iTunes um, or a review. Thank you.